Joining us today, we have Bryony Horgan. Bryony is a professor of planetary science at Purdue University. So thanks for joining us, Bryony. Yeah, glad to be here. And we appreciate you taking time, especially with a, a young new one here. It's a, it's hard to get away sometimes, literally hard to get away. <laughs> we understand that, but uh, you're balancing a lot on your plate right now with uh, everything that you're doing with the uh, old, are you doing any, any summer classes or anything? No, just a lot of research and missions and baby, which is a, a lot of, a lot of fun altogether. Really, any one of those would be a full-time thing. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I know you're getting ready to take some some time off from the uh, from campus for the mission, right? That's coming up. Yeah. So uh, Mars 2020, the next NASA rover, the Perseverance rover, will be landing in Jezero Crater in February 2021. So we're really excited about it. Uh, it's going to be landing where? Uh, in Jezero Crater on Mars. It's a. Uh, so you were on the, you had something to do with this from what i understand the the landing site it, before i say something totally wrong explain this to us yeah so uh, you might wonder okay how does nasa decide where to send a rover right how do you decide where to send this you know two billion dollar rover you're building your one chance to look for signs of ancient life on mars and the way nasa does it is we hold this uh, it's a long process it takes a couple of years we have these big community meetings where every all the scientists from you know all over the the world get together and talk about where they want to send this rover and then eventually you know you vote and you have uh, discussions and nasa has some internal decisions and eventually you know whittle it down to a couple of sites and so uh, i was really fortunate to help on the march 2020 team with studying and uh, sort of evaluating jezero crater as one of the candidate landing sites and so i actually got to go in and look at the satellite data and actually think about you know what the rover would do and you know what kind of science we could do there and then help present that to the community and uh, out of that process we ended up or nasa ended up selecting jezero as a landing site so it's been really cool to actually think about going to the place that we've been staring at in satellite data all this time so how many different i mean how many different places were proposed Oh, so the first meeting was a 2015, I think, and there were, oh God, I think it was 50 or 60 different landing sites kind of thrown out there and, you know, got it down to, you know, something like 20 and then something like, I forget if it was 12 and then seven and then three and kind of this, you know, many meetings. It's a lot of, it's a lot of fun though, right? It's actually, I tell my students, some of the best sort of most entertaining science you'll see in some of the best science, because people really have strong opinions. And they will they'll really try hard to defend them. And so it's a really it's a, one of the few times you really get to see science happening in front of you. Oh, wow. How many people would be on a, a team deciding something like this? So the actual decisions are made, you know, at NASA headquarters are ultimately made by the, uh, the NASA administrator. Um, so really, it's sort of all this input comes from the community, from the science team on the mission. Also from there's sort of, you know, a select back room of folks who help kind of make an more informed recommendation that also goes to the administrator, but ultimately it's, it's the, the guy in charge who decides where to go, <laughs> but he, they chose a great site. So I think it worked out well. Uh, what, well, and this was the site that, I mean, your team was proposing, right? Originally. Right. So actually I started out proposing a totally different site uh, and it's one that another rover is going to go to the ExoMars European rover, which is uh, going to launch supposed to launch next year. It's been delayed. So hopefully in uh, two years. Um, that's actually going to a site called Mark Vallis, and it's this really, it's totally different kind of place on Mars. It's, we think it's this really ancient 
surface environment with you know wetlands and all this stuff that used to be there but so mars 2020 isn't going there but we hope exomars will, will get there eventually so this uh what what was it jezzeret jezzeret yeah j-e-z-e-r-o jezzeret crater what uh tell me geology why why what's interesting what? about this thing well, so the you have to go back to what is the mission going to do, right? So what what is this specific rover trying to do? And so our previous rovers we've sent to Mars have, you know, we started out with Spirit and Opportunity going to Mars to look for signs of water to try to you know show that yes there was in fact water on ancient Mars, and they showed that in buckets and buckets, right? They found tons of ancient watery environments, all different kinds, hydrothermal systems, lakes, uh, playas where water is evaporating, all kinds of things. And then Mars Science Laboratory, the Curiosity rover followed up on that by saying, okay, now that we know there was water, now we can try to go figure out whether or not that water was actually a place where life could live, if it was habitable or not. So to do that, we had to send this big complicated rover that could look at the, the, the chemistry of the rocks and try to understand the chemistry of those ancient watery environments. Could they have supported life? Um, and so that's what Curiosity has been doing. And it found evidence for this long lived habitable lake environment in Gale Crater probably was there for maybe even millions of years or more. And now that we know, this is kind of gradual stepping up process, right? Now that we know there was water, we know that the, that water was habitable. Now we can finally send the rover we've been wanting to send for, for decades that's actually going to look in the ancient rocks on Mars for signs of ancient microbial life. Now that we know, you know that it was habitable, now that we think we kind of know where we can go looking for it, where it might be preserved, we can actually do that. So that brings you to Jezero, right? So why, why do we think Jezero is a good place to go look for those signs of ancient life? Uh, well, one thing, it's probably the, the best example we have on Mars of, uh, for evidence of a crater, an ancient crater lake. Because in Jezero, there's this big uh, lake delta. So a delta is what happens when a river flows into a body of water, either an ocean or a lake. It leaves this big kind of wedge of sediments behind. And so we see that in Jezero, we see this ancient dried up delta. And so that tells us there used to be a lake in this crater. We also see all kinds of cool uh, minerals that might have precipitated out of the lake. So things like carbonates, which form when you have dissolved carbon dioxide and other stuff in the lake and then precipitates out to make, you know, beautiful white beaches and things along the margins. And what's great about all those things, these kind of minerals that precipitate the delta depositing these sediments, uh, both of those places are places where you might expect to preserve signs of ancient microbes. You know, in the delta, you have these muds that are forming at the far end of the delta, kind of out in the lake. You can trap lots of organic molecules and uh, bits of microbes and things there. Uh, on the beaches and places where minerals are precipitating out, that's a really great way to trap organics and stuff too. And so between all those different kind of mechanisms for preserving signs of life, that's, that's the reason we chose Jezero, because it has lots of different ways you might expect to find uh, signs of ancient life from billions of years ago on Mars. Wow. All right. So I want to ask about the life in a second, but before, and Sarah, you can interrupt me or wave if I'm being too, uh, I'm just so excited. Um, if, I, if I'm being too greedy at the questions at her time. Um, all right. So uh, a planetary geologist, when we talk about, cause you're like, oh yeah, we know there was a lake there, but, and so, and people oftentimes kind of mean, they're like, but how would we know that? And so it, explain uh, how a planetary geologist figures out things about a planet based on what, well, I'll let you, me answering the question that I do. Yeah, so when I'm not uh, working on rover data, I work with data from NASA satellites around Mars, both from NASA and other space agencies around the world. 
so we use satellite data to look at the planet and try to understand, you know, what is the geology of the surface telling us? So for example, if you want to understand the history of water, we look for things like ancient river valleys that are dried up now, which we see crisscrossing the most ancient parts of Mars. This delta is a great example. We can see it in the orbital imagery as this kind of beautiful sort of uh, preserved uh, big triangular wedge of sediments with rivers carved into it and all of that. The other thing we do to try to understand water in particular is to look for minerals. So from orbit, we can actually identify minerals on the surface using a technique called spectroscopy, where we look at sunlight reflected from the surface. Uh, different minerals will absorb different wavelengths of that light. And by looking at those fingerprints of those minerals reflected back from the surface, we can tell which minerals are there. So we can look for things like salts on the surface, right? And salt is a good example because it forms usually in water, it precipitates out of water, and it's left behind when water evaporates. Right? And so we look for things like that. And on Mars, we've seen so many examples of all different kinds of minerals that tell us about all kinds of ancient watery environments, you know, hydrothermal springs, like you might find at Yellowstone, we see evidence for, for lakes, we see evidence for, you know, ancient soils forming from rain falling on them, kind of all sorts of different things. So we try to put that all together to, to get an idea of what, you know, this planet might have looked like billions of years ago, based on what's left in the rock record. But there's no I mean, um, evidence of currently evidence of water anywhere on the planet, is there? So there's lots of water frozen up in ice, right? So there's actually, there's enough water frozen in ice on Mars, either there's a little bit in the polar caps, but actually most of it's frozen just underground. There's tons of ice frozen underground on Mars. If you melted it, you can easily make an ocean, right? So there's actually a lot of water, there's just not much, there's just not a lot there that's liquid. We're still not totally sure if there's much liquid water on Mars today. If there is any, it's very little and it's very, very salty because that's the only way you can keep water liquid at cold temperatures just to make it really salty. And we've seen a little bit of evidence for that, but it's really controversial. So if there's any, so there's a lot of ice and if there's any liquid water, it's probably pretty deep underground. There are some ideas about maybe there are these deep biospheres on Mars where, you know, we have microbes living today, but it, in, in liquid water environments, but they're deep underground where it's still warm. Oh, wow. Uh Oh, wow. Uh, so when we, sorry, uh, I, with the, what rover is it called? Uh, per, uh, Perseverance? Per, per, yeah, yeah. Perseverance. Is it, uh, will it end up bringing samples back or is it just analyzing there only? How, how's that going to work? So the rover itself, what we're going to try to do is look for signs of ancient life and then also collect uh, little drill samples of rocks that we think might contain those signs of ancient life. We're going to do the best job we can looking for what we call biosignatures with the rover, but you know, with especially since we're talking about ancient Mars, we're talking about microbial life. It's really hard to find clear evidence for ancient microbial life in rocks, right? That's a problem we have on Earth. It's really we don't know a lot about the origin of life on Earth because it's really hard to track microbes through the geologic record. So to do that well, we really have to bring those rocks back to Earth. So this rover is going to collect those samples and they're all going to be these kind of pencil size sort of thin little drill cores that we're going to encase in these uh, little tubes. And what we're going to do is actually send another mission to go grab those drill cores and bring them back to Earth. And we're calling that Mars sample return. And it's this huge effort. It's really something we've been wanting to do at Mars, you know, not just NASA, but, you know, all planetary scientists all over the world for decades now, because it's really the, we think one of our best chances for finding science of life outside the earth is to get these rocks back from Mars into our labs, look at them with our, our you know, amazing microscopes and other techniques we have back here on earth. 
So that's, it's a really exciting set of missions. It's actually really complicated because you have to think about it, right? So you have this rover, so we have these samples, they'll be ready to go, you know, well characterized, all of that. But then you have to land on the surface, which is hard because landing on Mars is really tough already. Uh, then you have to rove over to either the, the Perseverance rover or whatever depot we leave our samples at to get the samples, bring them back to a launching platform, launch them from the surface of Mars into orbit, and then you have to capture that sample package in orbit with another spacecraft, bring it back to Earth, and land on Earth. <laughs> it's super complicated, and that's the reason we haven't done it yet, because we're kind of just getting to the point where we have the technology to do it. Um, so it's also expensive. That's another reason it hasn't happened yet. And so the way NASA is getting around that now is we're actually, they just signed a big agreement with uh, the European Space Agency. Both agencies are going to work on it together. And Europeans and NASA are going to sort of split it up and do different parts. You know, NASA is going to build some of the hard things like, you know, the, the spacecraft that lands on the surface and the Europeans are going to build the rover. But together we can kind of share the cost and hopefully do the science together when we get back to. So it should be really exciting. Now, will there be, right. uh, okay. Last question, then Sarah, yeah. take over. Uh, this is what I'm dying to ask. Uh, now, it, it, is there is there a, a, any chance, and it, it, what kind of chance would there be that any of this life is not fossilized, but possibly like living microbes? That's a great question. This is actually something NASA worries about a lot because there's a, a whole idea in NASA called planetary protection. So planetary protection is the idea that one, you know, you don't want to bring back anything to Earth that's potentially harmful. And so that's why, you know, when you bring things back from other planets, they have to be sort of either sterilized or really carefully controlled. Uh, but you also don't want to necessarily contaminate other planets with Earth life, right? Just from kind of a, a preservation point of view, you don't want to, you know, contaminate other planets and mess them up. But also because that makes it a lot harder for us to understand what's going on with uh, extraterrestrial life. There's a bunch of Earth life bumming around. So uh, one of the consequences of that is that NASA doesn't like, doesn't let us send missions to places where they think there's even a tiny chance that life might be living today on Mars. So that's places like, uh, you know, where we think there might be some sign of liquid water near the surface. Uh, there's also the, they also don't like us sending anything nuclear powered to where there is subsurface ice, because if you crash that, spacecraft and you had this nuclear powered thing that was warm and it melted the ice that would create this little refuge for earth life that could then grow. So they're really, really careful about where we can send missions. So for this mission, we're not allowed to send it anywhere where they think there's a good chance there might be living life today, but there are uh, other, let's cut out for a second. There might be other places where we can do that. So there are other mission ideas that are being really carefully thought of, of, you know, going to some of these icy places and looking for modern life or drilling deep into the subsurface to look for life. But this rover we're sending now isn't going to do that just because, A, you know, we hope we don't think we'll find it there, but also the rover isn't really set up to look for living things. It's set up to look at the rocks. Okay. All right, Sarah, I promised I, I would, I'd, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. That was a great question. Well, I'm just, I'm listening to all this. I, I had no idea. I didn't even think about like planning out where you would send a mission or where it would land. So that's just fascinating to me, first of all, there. But then you're, you've mentioned that a lot of this, it takes decades. 
you can't be many decades old. Like you're, you're young. And so how, how does all this planning, like if it, if it extends decades and decades, and this is something we've been wanting to do, how do you, because humans like have to, we're not that old once we get into it. How does that happen? Like, how do you continue the growth of this? Um, because I'm thinking like people that maybe even like that are just being born today, someday are going to like step in and continue with this plan. So can you speak a little bit about how this plan continues because it happens over such a long period of time? Yeah, I mean, so there definitely are some folks uh, still around that worked on the earliest rover missions. So like the, the Pathfinder uh, lander and the Sojourner rover back in the 90s, there are still folks around that, you know, that were grad students back in the days and they were working on that. And they're the ones that are leading some of these missions today. Uh, but definitely it's, you know, getting students involved. So like a lot of my work, I have, you know, a big group of grad students and a bunch of them are working on these rover missions. So they're learning, you know, how to, how to work on a rover, how to interpret the data, how to interpret satellite data making sure that they get out and do geology back here on earth too. So they have that kind of reference point, but they're being trained to kind of take over eventually. Right. And it's, and it's a really great point. Planetary science is kind of weird in that way. It does take decades. Right now we're talking about, you know, those ideas about maybe ascending a mission to Uranus or Neptune, but you know, it takes some, in some cases more than 10 years to get there. It might take you another 10 years to plan. So you're talking about missions that are doing things in like the 2040s. So that's, you know, hopefully I'll still be around at that point, but it's more likely that it's, you know, my students and postdocs right now that are they're going to be doing a lot of that science, which is really exciting. So it's definitely, it's, planetary science is a weird thing. It's, it has this really long time scale. And that's one of the things that makes it really fun, uh, but also kind of stressful because you have to worry about, oh, do I know what I'm going to be doing in 10 years? <laughs> you know, so, yeah. So, I mean, NASA, and NASA facilitates this because we have the Mars Exploration Program. And that's really, the, the goal of the whole Mars Exploration Program has been you know, Mars 2020, looking for signs of life and Mars sample return. So we've been building up to this rover for, you know, ever since uh, Pathfinder landed in the 90s. And you could argue even going back to the Viking landers in the 70s, which were our first landers on Mars that you know, first tried to look for signs of life. They've been really building up to this for a long time. And so we're, uh, we're really excited. It's also a lot of pressure, but we're, we have a great team and a great, uh, great rover. So. Well, thank you. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> So, do we know why the surface has changed and why there's not lakes or, or what could have, do we have ideas? I know we don't know, no, but do we have ideas on what might have changed at Mars? That's a great question. Yeah, because what we're talking about is, you know, all this water I've been talking about, mostly this is like three or four billion years ago that we think there's evidence for liquid water or lots of it on the surface of Mars. And today it's all frozen. It's very, very dry and the surface is really cold. The reason that water isn't stable today on the surface is because the atmosphere is too thin. Um, you know, to have liquid water be stable, you have to have a thick enough atmosphere to keep it there. Now the atmosphere is so thin that water can only be stable either as uh, as a gas or as a solid as ice. In between, it just you know the water will just boil away. So we think what must have been different in the past is that Mars must have had a much thicker atmosphere, probably closer to what Earth has. You know, right now the atmosphere at Mars is something like you know. Uh, one one thousandth or one one hundredth of the thickness that we have here on Earth, so it's really thin, right? You can't breathe it. Um, but three or four billion years ago, it must have been a lot thicker. So you have to say, okay, where did it go, right? What happened to it? Uh, so we think there's a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, some of it probably got blown off the planet. Uh, you know, by early solar wind can strip atmospheres from planets. Also, big impacts from big asteroids and things hitting can also strip off some of the atmosphere. 
and also just Mars, you know, it's a much smaller planet than the Earth. It only has about, uh, you know, it's about half the size of the Earth. And so because of that, the gravity is a lot lower. And so over time, really light gases can actually just escape and they can just, you know, literally be stripped away, kind of puff out and escape the planet. And so all those things together, we think have led to uh, loss of the atmosphere. What we don't know is how much there was to start. And that's one of the big questions that NASA is trying to answer is how much atmosphere is Mars lost? That's how you figure out, you know, how warm, how wet, what kind of environments really were there. And so, you know, we're hoping that some of the samples are bringing back with more sample return will tell us that because we can look at things like uh, the you know specific minerals that you know form from the atmosphere like carbonates that come from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere we have isotopes and things that tell us about how much atmosphere was there when they formed and so that's one of the reasons we really want to do more sample return too is to figure some of this stuff out. I know a lot of the uh, climate change scientists here on Earth um, <laughs> talking about the how climate change they look at like the ice core records and stuff like that do we will we uh are do you expect that we'll learn more about the climate that was on mars with when we look at if we get ice cores in in there ah, so many words is ice actually in those cores that we get yeah that's a great question that's actually one of the mission ideas that's floating around right now it's kind of one of the next you know what's the next big thing we're going to do on mars you know, after sample return or while we're working on sample return. And one of the ideas is going to the polar caps and either, you know, drilling or having a rover that can kind of rove up the, uh, the side of the caps to look, to basically do that, to basically get an ice core and see how the climate has changed recently. The ice caps are a lot younger than the kind of rocks we're going to see in Jezero. They're probably, you know, millions of years, tens of millions of years, maybe at the most hundreds of millions of years, but they can tell us about how the climate has changed on Mars recently. And we know it has, we see evidence that, you know, there used to be glaciers in this part of the planet and now they're gone, you know, just like here on Earth, we see evidence that, you know, ice has moved around, all of that. And so if we can figure out more about how the climate on Mars works, that'll also help us understand how the climate on Earth works too and how it changes over time. It helps us refine our climate models and atmospheric models and all of that too. Well, and do we expect that eventually the data that we get from Mars, the Will that then be to give us insight to what we need to either do, stop doing, or not do here on Earth to prevent something like us being a Mars in a few more billion years? I mean, so well, the, the good news is we'll never turn into a Mars because the Earth, the Earth's so big, it's going to hold on to its atmosphere. And so the problem is that means you're going to keep in the atmosphere whatever you put into it, though, right? And, and that's probably the problem we have here on Earth is. You have to worry about all that stuff we're putting into the atmosphere right now sticking around for a long time. So uh, there are some things we'll learn. Like on Mars, one of the big mysteries right now is methane. So methane, it's a greenhouse gas back here on Earth, and it might be important for keeping Mars warm in the past. But it's weird because we see it on Mars today. There's been observations showing it in the atmosphere. But methane uh, isn't stable. It should be broken down by sunlight and the atmosphere and all of that. So where is it coming from on Mars? One possibility is that it's coming from life that's living in the subsurface today, that it's actually a biosignature in the atmosphere. Um, and we're not sure, and that's one of the ideas. It could be coming from, or it could be coming from uh, water interacting with rocks deep underground too. We're not really sure, but that's definitely, you know, one of learning more about methane and why it's there, why it's stable, why it's hanging around is something that might help us again, kind of understand our atmosphere back here on Earth a little better too. Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> So uh, 
in another, I mean, what Sarah say, you're several decades old. Is that what she said? <laughs> Hundreds of well, decades not. or something like that. So, you know, no, in, you another can't do- be. in another you can't dozen be deca- decades, in another yeah. dozen decades, when you look back and you're like, all right, I was a planetary scientist. You're more geology than anything else, right? Planetary geologist. Right. Right? And so, uh, wait, what are you going to say? Okay, I was successful because or beyond successful because we learned what that's a great know, it's question. a weird question but i'm weird i think i think it's going to be about how to look for life because i think that's what nasa has been learning over the past couple of decades is how do you do it because i really if you go back so i mentioned viking earlier so viking were these two huge spacecraft the, two, the first two things first two really successful missions that landed on mars and their goal was to, they said, okay, we're going to land on Mars. You know, it's been this place that we've thought might support life for, for, you know, hundreds of years based on looking through it at telescopes and things. We're going to go, we're going to look for, you know, microbes living in the soil on Mars. So the Viking landers landed and they looked, they tried to, you know, take some of the soil and grow it, you know, try to grow the microbes in there. They tried to look for organic molecules in the soil and just basically more or less totally failed. <laughs> It turns out we just didn't know enough, you know, for example, they were looking for organic molecules in the soil and they didn't see them. It turns out they're actually probably there. We just didn't know what to look for. Uh, When we do the same kind of experiments today, we see byproducts that tell us that, yeah, there are organic molecules in the soil on Mars today. Um, Probably not from life, probably from meteorites and things raining down, but they're there. Uh, And the life experiments too, we don't really, they're really ambiguous. You know, they basically tried to mix some, uh, growth media in with the soil and see if anything came out and they saw all these weird gases come out uh and so now we know okay that at the time it was really controversial is that sign of life or not but now we can now we know what's in the soil on mars we can say no that's probably just a reaction with some minerals that were in the soil so we know a lot more now about that but from those missions you know nasa it took another 20 years before nasa figured this out but they said okay we need to actually think about how to look for life. It's a really hard question, especially when it's microbes you're talking about. And that's where the Mars Exploration Program came out of it saying, okay, we first need to know whether or not there was water. Then we need to look for a habitable environment. And then we can go look for a place where that life might be preserved. Now that we know all these things, we've actually taken a lot of those lessons learned and we're applying them to other places like Europa. Uh, It's one of the icy moons in the outer solar system of Jupiter, you know, we're talking about you're just building these new missions to go to Europa to look for signs of life. And we're following that same kind of progression now at Europa that's worked so well at Mars, even exoplanets, right? So outside of our solar system, now we kind of know, okay, what is, what do we know about habitability versus looking for actual biosignatures? You know, how do you do that? And we've learned a lot from that process. So I'm really hopeful that cool thing you know i really hope we'll find some signs of extraterrestrial life uh in you know a couple decades that would be awesome but even if we don't i think we'll know so much more about how to do it that we'll be on the right path to doing it pretty soon oh that's that's cool i like that answer that's a good answer it is a weird question you answered it well too all right so a high school student if a high school student is listening to this right now and they're like, whoa, this is so cool, which it is, um, they'd be right. Now, what do we tell them? I just had a high school student give me a look. Um, <laughs> she can only hear half the conversation, the things I say, and she looks back in like, what? <laughs> but um, what do we tell them that the, they would want to study or to focus on in high school so that they could be successful and possibly one day being on a team looking for life somewhere? Well, the one thing you really need to be a planetary scientist is you need a college degree in some kind of hard science. It doesn't have to be planetary science. It can be, 
you know, it could be geology, chemistry, physics, even math, uh, biology, all those things. Will work. You have to get that. And to get that, you need to take, uh, as, you know, as much math as you can in high school. It's really important. If you can get an opportunity to learn how to program, that's also really great. Uh, it's better. It's like language. The earlier you do it, the easier it is. So uh, that's really awesome. Uh, and yeah, and also look for opportunities to get involved. I mean, NASA has internships for high schoolers. There are all kinds of cool opportunities to do, you know, outreach with NASA. Uh, and just keep up with what's going on. Uh, and eventually you can actually get involved. It's really cool. I have undergrads here at Purdue that help analyze rover data with me and have been on papers with me talking about science, the Gale Crater with curiosity. So there are ways to get involved early on, but for sure, taking a lot of math, if you can, is it helps a lot. And I just wanted to point out too, you, you had said hard science. And I think just for listening, that doesn't mean necessarily that it's that it's that you can't do it it's yeah. not that it's difficult but it's the it's it's the difference between what they call a hard science and a soft science and so the sciences that that you're speaking of like mathematics chemistry physics um, biology like those things those are they're referred to as hard science classes but it doesn't mean that not doable. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, no, it's yeah. totally true. You also don't have to do, you, you know, if you're worried about not being good at math and doing science, you don't necessarily have to be right. Math is something you learn how to do and you do it. It's a tool. I actually don't do that much math day to day in my job, but doing math, doing physics and learning how to do it is so important for learning how to think through science problems, right? That's really what you're learning when you learn how to do those things is how to think critically, how to do science. And so even though I don't do a lot of math, having all that background has been really, really helpful for me. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, we so appreciate this. We appreciate your time. This was, this was really awesome. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so much. It's fun to talk about Mars. So. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I'll be honest, uh, full disclosure. I mean, I knew that there was ideas that we, yeah, there was probably water on Mars before, but I didn't realize there's that much evidence. I didn't either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, wow, I, I kind of feel like, whoa, I missed the ball because, I mean, your office is, you know, not far from mine. And, <laughs> so, and I didn't know, realize that. I'm like, oh, this is embarrassing. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully soon I'll have an actual rock that was made in a lake on ancient Mars that I can show you. Yeah, that'll be so wow. cool. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How I just cool. want to know what they find. I want to know what they find. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the question I forgot to ask. Um, oh, Cheryl be so disappointed in me. Uh, let me ask you one more question. Yeah, even though I thought we were done, I was just rambling at that point. Um, because uh, Cheryl asked me to ask, um, how can we have it? You know, when this, when this, uh, is going to land, right? But you have this big window of when it's going to take off, right? Yeah, so there's a, a big two week window when the rover can launch from Florida from Cape Canaveral, and we have a window because. You know, storms or all this stuff might make it so you can't, you can't, you can't launch the first opportunity you can. And, you know, there's only a specific time we can launch because you need to have Earth and Mars lined up in the right way. Because the way it actually happens is we launch the rocket from Earth and Mars kind of comes, it catches up to Mars and then lands on Mars. So they have to be in the right kind of orbital configuration. But what's really cool is uh, even though we're launching in this big two week window, uh, we, we know what day and time it's going to land at because we know exactly where it's going to land on Mars. And so Mars has to be pointed toward us the exact right way so that we can hit that landing site coming in from Earth. So to do that, once we launch, the, the engineers will actually, you know, use rockets on, on the on the spacecraft to either slow down or speed it up so that we can make sure to hit the bullseye when we get to Mars. And the bullseye is tiny. The bullseye is 
our landing ellipse place we expect to land is uh, something like eight kilometers across. I mean, the, the equivalent is insane. It's like shooting, has sniper shooting someone on the other side of the planet uh, from, it's insane how accurate it is. And the engineers are doing an amazing job getting us to Mars and getting us there. That, that is just mind blowing. I mean, the fact that you could, uh, within a two week window sometime, you're gonna toss something off the earth and you're gonna have it land at a particular day and time at an exact location. Is that that's just crazy? That's that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. That is so cool. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay, thank you. This is just awesome. Yeah, happy to help. Well, thank you for listening to our podcast. Please hit the subscribe button so you'll continue to hear about new and exciting STEM-related work being done. Tweet us questions, suggestions, and requests at Purdue SOS, or email us at k12science at purdue.edu. Until next time, be super, and remember, you are someone's hero. Boiler up. Hammer down.